little bit of a different format, which is uh, you know, Q&A. And um, Narayan's resting a bit. She'll be available for interviews after this uh, meeting. And also um, she'll be answering questions about the metta practice tomorrow, sometime I think right after the metta session in the afternoon. She's the meta expert uh, up here. Uh, so, and also, we're going to be doing a Q and A on the last day of the retreat, uh, which is drawing closer and closer. Uh, it's going to be on Sunday, of course, and um, we'll address like kind of questions about uh, practicing, taking your practice into your ordinary life, your non-retreat life. And, uh, it's, uh, obviously, that's where most of us are going to be practicing, so it's, uh, it's important to begin to uh, expand the field of awareness, the field that we've been practicing here, and, and bring it into your daily life, continuing this process of unfolding. But tonight, I'd like to uh, just respond to any questions you might have um, Mostly to do, I mean, if it has something related to going home, that'll be okay. But mostly to do with, um, you know, your days spent here uh, so far. I mean, the retreat is not over. Um, it's another full day of practice tomorrow. Uh, but this is basically an open forum to uh, bring up anything that's on your mind, any uh, lingering thoughts or questions, areas of confusion, insights you might or might not have had, um, anything. So feel free, and the person who goes first definitely gets extra credit. There you go. That was quick. He's young. No, nothing. I said you're young. You're quick with the hand. Up loud, though, because I get—I have to hear you. In the chanting, okay. Yeah. God. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. Did you just finish uh, law school or? I I know that's not true, but let's go through it. Because I don't think you can flip it around. I think one. Insight leads to the next. All conditioned things are impermanent. Okay. Anybody disagree with that? Thoughts, states of mind, sensations, the environment. Okay. Condition means, that's a really good, it, that it's phenomena, ex- sensation, experience that arises and passes away. You know, like uh, all things that we experience, 
in this world is, is conditioned. It's conditioned by something else. Like our breathing is conditioned by the air. The air is conditioned by chemicals and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, can't go down there too far. Uh, but, but it's basically, it's phenomena. Experience, what we experience. Sensations, sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, living beings, non-living beings, all conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. So that means they're, they're impermanent. That's their nature. You know, their, their nature is to change. That's what they have in common. Uh, there are lots of different conditions, and they look and feel and taste very different. Where can, you know, we have, the body is a conditioned experience. The mind is conditioned. But, of course, there's a lot of variety and a lot of differences in that. But the one common truth to that is that all of it is changing. And nature is to rise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings true happiness. Okay, that means that if we understand that all things are changing, including ourselves, well, what we discover is we don't get attached to things. Okay, we don't identify with things. We don't grasp onto them for lasting happiness. In other words, we just understand that Lasting peace can't be found in conditioned phenomena because their nature is to arise and pass away. So if we take refuge in money, power, relationships, whatever it is, if we take refuge in a sense that we're going to get lasting happiness from that thing, um, it's, it's ignorance, it's delusion, at least within this framework. So, so to be in harmony with this truth means to be in harmony with nature, to understand that we're part of nature. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to live fearlessly in what we can taste. And I don't want to go down this road too far. But one can begin to taste the unconditioned, which isn't conditioned, which doesn't arise and pass away, which is kind of your innate nature within you. It doesn't arise, it doesn't pass away. But as long as we keep grasping on and identifying, and on just in a practical level, we can see when we identify with the body, we suffer. When we take the body as self, or we grasp onto it out of a feeling of security, um, then we suffer. If we grasp on um, to a mind state, like concentration, or if we react strongly to aversion, with aversion towards an unpleasant mind state, we can see that we're suffering. We don't see the impermanent nature of that experience. And so when we see the impermanent nature of experience, what happens in the long run is that we begin to relax. The tension, the stress that we experience comes out of not seeing that things are changing. And this isn't something that you have to buy. You, know, you don't need to believe any of what I'm saying. Uh, and you certainly don't have to believe what the Buddha is saying in this particular case. It's really just a matter of paying attention to your experience and to see if it's true or not. And, th- and that's really what the teachings... That's the essence of the teachings, is to take a look at your experience, and if you find something that doesn't arise and pass away, let us know. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely, let us know. Definitely let us know. Because I'd be curious to, to hear what that is. Because things do change. doesn't matter what we feel about that, but they do change. Yeah. It does matter how we feel about that, actually. But they do change. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm referring to 
Louder. Yep, the knowing changes. Right, exactly. That's right. The knowing of the experience arises and passes away also. Absolutely. Yep, the knowing is actually a conditioned phenomena. And the observer is a conditioned phenomena. Correct. Yep. (laughs) There is no observer. We think there is. Correct. There's observing. Absolutely, there's observing. But we tend to identify with the observing. And we hear it through the commentator, the one that's commenting on our experiences, that's you know, looking at things, and we feel like there's a being back there somewhere, uh, an announcer or uh, a commentator or, or a speechwriter or something. And, and it's, that's just a concept that we're carrying, an idea about... Okay, good. <laughs> wow. Uh, is the observing and the observed the same? Right. Correct. You might say there are different aspects of the same thing. You might say that. No guarantee you'd be right. And no guarantee I'm right either here. Um, but there, the, I think what's important is not to spend a lot of time dwelling on that as much as the fact is with practice, as practice gets quieter, we'll begin to see the impermanent nature of the observer. And actually what happens in practice, which is... I think pretty far out, is that the observer begins to lose its power and we're no longer haunted by the observer. So experience is much more direct. There's no mediation. There's, you, know, you can experience something without interpreting it, without thinking that somebody is experiencing it, and there's just the experience. So that, that's where practice goes much more in the direction of intimacy rather than creating distance. Because what the observer does is creates a sense of separation from our experience and creates a sense of distance, like somebody's watching inside. And that's another word for that is self-consciousness. And that self-consciousness actually dissolves. But the process usually includes, it doesn't, as far as I know, includes being aware of the observer. In other words, that comes into the field of mindfulness. Um, and it begins to 
we begin to see the insubstantiality. We don't identify with the observer anymore, and it loses its power. And we lose self-consciousness in that sense. Uh, way back, back row, and then, yeah, the very fathers, yeah. Uh, no idea. Next question. <laughs> no idea. Okay. I think it's just that's the way it's done. Other people. Yeah. That sense of satisfaction when you finish your Dharma job. Is that grasping or is that a, could that be a part of right action or right mindedness? Why don't you turn around and ask the question? That, that sense of satisfaction when you finish your Dharma job, is that grasping or is that part of right livelihood or right action? Well, I think to me, you'd have to investigate that yourself. Yeah. You, you have to investigate the nature of that satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like there'd be anything wrong with feeling satisfied when you, when you finish a job, but some of it might just depend on how you're relating to that. You know, while you're doing it. And then what the completion of that job gives rise to. And oftentimes, it gives rise to pride if we think we've done it well. And then if we don't think we've done it well, we identify ourselves as failing or as flawed. So to me, that's, that's definitely an area of investigation for sure. We should really look at that whole notion sometimes of success and failure, pride or self criticism or self-condemning and they're kind of they're really in the same field in a way they're just different aspects of of taking taking things on and identifying with them like a good example of that is oftentimes we identify with our role you know whatever our job might be we identify with our role and and, and there's nothing wrong with that's different than getting satisfaction from your work very different but if one identifies with one role one's role, that one will inevitably suffer because of that, as as I'm sure you know. Because roles change. That's the nature. Yeah. Yes. Nice and loud. Mm-hmm. Excuse me? Nice and loud. Um, yep. She was suggesting um, expanding one's perspective and passion or liveliness. And I'm not able to reconstruct exactly how she put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for and sure. I was thinking about that in relationship to physical pain. Yeah, good. And how physical pain figures in that um, the paradigm. And I've been working with a lot of physical pain and my plan is to change the viewpoint 
Okay. Let me give a little bit of a definition of what investigation is, I think, in this framework. Investigation is open-hearted, okay, open-hearted, no conclusions or preconceptions. So it's open-hearted, sustained attention. Okay, all, all three have to be there. What? Right. Okay. So uh, definitely getting there. So how would one investigate pain? in that particular instant, rather than just know it and make a decision about what to do about it? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be identifying it as a scapula. I mean, that would be one form of investigation, knowing uh, what's causing it and what the structures are in the body or what the organ, you know, whatever the, whatever the, actually causing it. And sometimes we have to go on that level of investigation. But say on a Dharma level investigation, you have several... Options, actually, in investigating pain. Um, one is one could observe the sensations themselves in a sustained way and notice their changing nature. Okay? And, and that sometimes is a very useful investigative process, you know, to, to actually observe the sensation itself and, and we'll see the pulsating, the expanding, the contracting, the edges, the heat, the cold. We begin to see it as a form of energy. And, and I think it's important to see pain on that level. It has certain characteristics. It's expressing itself from one moment to the next. It's not actually solid or stable. It feels like that knot in your body is as solid as a rock. Uh, but it's not. Okay, rocks aren't even solid. So the, the tension in the body is definitely not. It's changing from one moment to the next. So that's one level of investigation. But what I think a more important level of investigation, which I think tunes in more on practical life, like what to do when we confront pain, not just on the cushion but in our daily life. And that would be to include or expand the field of attention to include the mind's relationship to that pain. Okay? And most of the time when we encounter pain, there's an aversive reaction to that. Right? And that that aversion changes too. I mean, it can be fear one moment. It could be impatience. It could be anger and discouragement. Uh, Anxiety, worry, speculation, um, confusion. You know, the mind can react in a lot of different ways when it encounters pain. And so an investigative practice would be to definitely bring awareness to how you're holding that pain. And that's extremely crucial to do, not just on the cushion, but in your daily life. And one can train oneself to be able to do that. In other words, to encounter pain and then to see what you're doing with that. Whatever that painful condition is that we're meeting in our life. To Investigation means not just to be able to recognize that you're in pain, 
but that you're all, one also has to include, well, what am I doing with that pain? And the big uh, advantage to that, you know, what, one reason why we want to do that is because we're conditioned to react to that pain in a specific way, and it limits us, and it, it generates a lot of fear. Whereas if we can bring more awareness to how we're relating to that pain, automatically there, there's more room in the mind. There's more room in the mind, actually, because now we're being aware of that reaction rather than being caught by that reaction, and that creates a little bit of space in the mind to then apply discernment to what you need to do. And that's what we want to do when we confront pain. We don't want to react in a conditioned, aversive, fearful way. We want to respond with wisdom. But to get there, one has to see what one is doing in relationship to it. And in, sense, in a sense, inquiry in meditation practice is we're actually investigating or questioning what our relationship to things are. You know, we're not just going through life automatically like a pinball, you know, just hitting a condition and bouncing away. If it's painful, hitting a condition and grasping on. That's the conditioned mind. But in meditation practice, wait a second, we're, we're looking at our reaction. You know, we're questioning it. We're investigating it. Do I have to relate to pain this way? Do I have to grasp on to pleasure? You know, what's the consequences of that for me? And that's the investigative uh, process. Um, so that's why even investigating physical pain, why it's so useful, because we begin to get to know what aversion is like in the mind. And then eventually, you know, if there's too much aversion, you know, or if the pain is too much, or if we, you know, wisdom can arise out of that. For instance, if one has a, a bad back, you know, investiga- wise investigation would not be just to observe that pain and just stay in there and just stay and not move and not take care of yourself. That would not be wise investigation. It would be one form of investigation, but it wouldn't necessarily be wisdom. Wisdom much more would be looking at how I'm relating to that pain and then realizing that, wait a second, you know, I, I, I need to take care of this situation. You know, this is too much. I know I have a bad back. I need to sit in a chair. I need to do some standing. I need to do lying meditation if you had to. That would be the wisdom that emerges out of an investigative process. Okay. So we can investigate any conditioned phenomena, any experience that we have in our life. We can bring open-hearted attention to that situation. And that's what we want to train ourselves to do because that will fundamentally change our life in a very radical way. Way back row. Nice and loud, though. Nice and loud. Yep. Great. No, 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 because investigation doesn't have to be, doesn't have to fixate on one object. 
to investigate it. Yeah. In other words, one investigation might be just to be aware of, say, the planning mind or a thought. And, and that thought, the, the moment that you're aware of it, it changes. You know? And so you've investigated that thought. You've paid attention to it. It's just the phenomena changed. Um, where thinking comes in, thinking can be very useful, and it, it, it's obviously it's, it's an investigative tool. You know, analyzing, figuring out, reflecting, Thoughts can be useful. On this retreat, it may not seem that way. Uh, because the, when we sit back and observe our thoughts, we see how repetitive they are. But really, ultimately, and plus we don't encourage thinking. You know, we, we know there's a lot of thinking going on, so we don't encourage it. Um, but when you get out there and you start functioning in a much more complex way, obviously speech, talking, relationships, all of that kind of stuff, uh, yeah, you want to be able to think about things and also reflect and analyze and problem solve and all of that. But you want that to come out of a space of silent attention, you know, a, a sort of an inner silence. And then the thinking is so much more clear. You know, in, in other words, say one is faced with some dilemma in life where, I don't know, uh, let's see, it's so complicated, all these dilemmas. Um, <laughs> something simple. Um, oh, say you thinking about changing jobs, which isn't simple, but (laughs) you're thinking about changing jobs, and you want to investigate what that means to you to change jobs. And so to me, when I say sustained attention, it's not that you just sit down all day and you just watch your mind necessarily. That might be useful sometimes. But it's that you try to stay in touch with your feelings, your emotions, the moods, when, you give, when thoughts give rise to changing jobs, what does that do? Does it create excitement? Does it generate excitement and then fear? You know? And what's the nature of that fear? Is it fear of the unknown? Is it fear of poverty? Is it fear of success? Is it fear of failure? You know? One can actually begin to learn a lot about oneself by investigating, but... but where thoughts are limited is that they're not very open-hearted. You know, that, uh, mindfulness and sustain, using mindfulness in a sustained way is much more open-hearted. So it can actually look at your experience, all the, all the thoughts and emotions and reactions and ideas that you have about changing jobs, and it can be just open to all of those experiences in a very non-judgmental way. And then pretty soon you get to really see what it means to change, to change jobs. And then you can make a decision based on that understanding. You know, rather than, say, thinking about changing jobs and then just constantly engaging you know, and questioning and doubt, questioning and doubt, and questioning and thinking and planning and uh, worrying, all the kinds of stuff that one often gets into. You know, that, that's where a lot of our thinking goes. It's very habitual. So investigating this way First, with silent attention, and then out of that awareness, thinking arises in discernment, which includes thinking. Discernment includes thinking. It's clear thinking, wise thought, like the Buddha talked about, but it comes out of awareness. Sitting?
Compassion? No. No. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, definitely. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of times you have to say, hey, get back to the breath. You know? Like, you know? That's a thought. You know? Definitely. It's definitely a thought. And, but it comes out of awareness. The awareness that you're not with your breathing. And telling yourself that, yeah, it's a really good idea to get back to the breath. I'm going to drop my vacation plans. And, and, and it's more productive to be with the breathing. So, so, yeah, but definitely wise use of thought for sure. You know? It's just that you have to, I'd say you have to do it in moderation. You, know, you have to do it in moderation. Not, not to spend, because the tendency is to do a lot of analyzing and figuring out. But absolutely wise use of thought for sure. You know, the decision to come into the hall and sit. You know, that's thought. You know, that's thought. It's wise thought. You know, when the bell rings, I think that's wise thought, but it's thought for sure. Um, there was, yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just confused about the Sure. Well, I mean, sometimes people misunderstand compassion for approval or justification or letting somebody off the hook. Mm-hmm. And not, compassion isn't not, not, is not any of the above. Um, and that's not, that's not compassion. That's, that's, sometimes that's fear, um, rationalization, or compassion has nothing to do with being passive either. And letting, in you know, uh, doing nothing in the face of injustice. Um, I mean, one can have one, one can have compassion for one's enemies. No doubt about that, and still not let yourself get crushed or abused and mistreated. In in the whole, the whole thing with compassion is you need wisdom too. You need both. 
Compassion can't, in a sense, be blind. It can't be like a belief system. You can't convince yourself, oh, I have to have compassion for that person you know, because I want to be a good person. That's not really compassion. No, no. Compassion is, is simply, uh, well, it's different things, but I'd say it comes out of see, recognizing suffering in other beings. And, and I, I, I mean, sometimes a good example of this is when I read the newspapers, for instance, and I'll read about some, you know, something, that, something horrible somebody did to somebody and they get caught, you know, and, and they're in trial. And, you know, the thing they did was just, I mean, inexcusable. I mean, you just can't, you can't just, there's no way you can get around that and say it's okay by any stretch of the imagination. Um, do you think that person who did that is suffering? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Not only are they suffering now, they're going to be suffering in the future. The price that they pay for doing that you know, is, is tremendous. I mean, tremendous. It's incalculable, the price that people pay for their actions. Um, now, when one's close to that situation, you, know, you can't expect a family member necessarily or somebody close to that situation. You can't expect one to feel compassion uh, because we're too close and we're too hurt by what they did. Um, but every once in a while, you know, in fact, I, I was just reading an article a couple days ago. Uh, we actually read the newspapers <laughs> occasionally on retreat. Um, you know, where, where, where a family member was expressing compassion towards somebody that had you know, murdered somebody in their family. And, I mean, it, it's unbelievable when I read that because I just think, wow, I don't know, how, you know, it's kind of like, how do they do that? How do they get there? Uh, because that's not an easy place to get to, and you know they're being sincere. You know? I mean, you also read a lot about the anger, too, in families, but um, everyone is suffering, and, it, and they're also engaged in tremendously unskillful actions. And for us, it's up to us to manifest and respond to the world that we're living in, the conditions that we face with wisdom. And that can mean different things for everybody. Somebody that might mean playing the piano. You know, for somebody else, it might mean writing or uh, being politically active or being socially active or all of those things. You know? I mean, it, it can mean a lot of different things, and I think a lot of us have different ways of expressing that. But wisdom and compassion need to go hand in hand. Otherwise, it's just kind of a blind ideal. Uh, you're kind of convincing yourself that, um, you know, convincing something that isn't so authentic. Um, and to me, compassion comes about through meditation practice. One is it comes about by understanding the nature of suffering within oneself. And that, it, it's an amazing process because once one has worked with a lot of suffering in oneself, it definitely becomes easier to recognize and be open anyways to the suffering around you. It's like you become much more sensitized and open to that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm thinking specifically of situations like in my life, I have a lot of um, grounded I will, for me, I have 
Oh. It's okay that I'm oh, really? hurt, first of all, and I don't have to justify, you know, I have trouble not trying to justify that I'm hurt. So I sometimes get into a place where, well, whose hurt am I going to work on? You know, and like... Work on you first. It, right, first, like, yeah. Oh, because they hurt you? Oh. And I told them they did something wrong. You know what I mean? Or like they feel guilty and they've apologized, you know, yeah. that I can't forgive now or whatever it is. You know, there's lots of situations like that in our lives. And yeah. Just thinking about, um, you know, especially after they talk about compassion, do you need to feel compassion? But I, you know, I might still be hurt and the wrong hasn't been righted. I'd say it's work on both. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I think you have to work on both. You have to treat yourself equally in that process. You know, your job isn't just to take care of the other person and their suffering, make them feel okay or any of that. It's to take care of both of you in that way. And that might mean talking to that person and dealing with it. You know, I mean, if people hurt us, our job isn't just to feel compassion towards them. It's also to respond you know, in a skillful way. Because otherwise, we just let people hurt us. And, and that's not wise. You have to include yourself in this field of compassion. And Ryan really made that clear. And I think it, it's not always so easy. It depends on one's conditioning sometimes. Sometimes one's conditioning lends oneself to feel compassion towards oneself, but not compassion towards the other beings. And uh, sometimes it's the reverse. And, and, you know, that, that, you know, we have compassion for others, but we just can't get there for ourselves. And to me, compassion includes all beings. It needs to include all beings. Otherwise, that needs to be investigated. Like, why, you know? What's holding one back? You know, what's the, what's the, where are we getting stuck? But you need wisdom. That's the key. In other words, understand. See, to me, what I hear is a little bit. There's a little bit of a pattern, uh, or habit, playing itself out when you get hurt. You know, some you react in a certain way, and and life gets complicated around that. And to me, I kind of look at that. Like, what happens when I do get hurt? You know, what do I do? You know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's an investigative practice, actually, to feel that pain when somebody hurts you, hurts you or insults you or hurts your feelings. And then to kind of look at what we do with that. Do we close down? Do we take responsibility? You know, do we think we've done something wrong? Do we let the other person off the hook? Do we immediately blame the other person and not really investigate what they might be criticizing us for? You know, though that's the area of relationship and being mindful in relationship and all of those things need to be investigated silently in a sense open heartedly without any judgments or, or opinions and views being imposed on that just kind of taking a look and seeing what we do in relationship to others but you can't necessarily rush to compassion you know, just because it might be sound like a good thing or a Dharma teacher says it's a really good thing. You know, you can't just get there. You, know, you have to understand what's going on within your body-mind process. 
How are we relating to the suffering that we're encountering? See, that's the key. When somebody hurts you, you know, how, how, what do we do with that? You know, it's a, to me, it's something, when, you, when you're a meditator, you get sensitive. People can hurt you. you know, it's not like you become invulnerable. But what do we do when somebody hurts us? One more. I'm not going to go near that one. <laughs> Those things picking. No way. No way. See, that's wisdom. <laughs> See, I've been around way too long to make gender generalizations <laughs> because I, I really don't think you can make generalizations. I mean, could the Buddha be a woman? Of course. Are enlightened beings women? Of course. It's, it's no brainer. I mean, why, why? Why? I mean, we're all Buddha nature. Um, we all have the capacity for liberation. You know, men and women, they're all different. Good answer? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take one more question. (laughs) Okay, one more. Okay, good. That hand, way back. Uh, Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, take one guess about lying down. (laughs) So, I want you to practice lying down when you go to bed. And there are a few people with body problems that have needed to lie down. And it's 100% legitimate. Really, the main reason is it probably would take up too much room in the hall. And secondly, really the primary reason, though, is that it leads to uh, sleepiness. Because sitting up leads to sleepiness. Just imagine <laughs> what lying down does. And I've had times when I've had back problems, you know, over the years, once in a while. It's been a while since I've had to do, forced to do lying meditation, but my day will come. Um, and it's really challenging to stay awake. I admire folks that need to do lying and really work at it and try to devise ways to stay awake and it's, it is quite difficult for most. Some people don't have a problem, but the vast majority of people, that's one of the main challenges. So there's the lying. Standing, I think standing meditation is great. I teach standing meditation. We haven't really done that on this retreat, but that might be something that... I mean, to me, when one is doing walking meditation, I think it's helpful to stop. I mean, that's something we didn't say too much um, during this retreat. But I, I used to find it very helpful to stop and do some standing. Um, especially when you're doing walking meditation, you notice that there's a lot of thinking going on. You know, just constant backdrop of thinking, thinking, planning, planning, planning. Did anybody notice that today? <laughs> yeah. 
it's, it can be really helpful to stop the body and do some standing and feel both feet resting on the floor. It, it can really help quiet the mind down. And, and that was a method that was taught to me, really, from the very beginning of my, my Vipassana training, was that if you do notice that there's a lot of stuff going on, um, do some standing. But also, wait a second, we have taught standing meditation. What do I say when you're feeling sleepy? I tell, I've told you to stand. And, and, and it's a good practice. I've, I've spent countless hours doing standing meditation in meditation halls because of sleepiness predominantly or severe body pain. Standing meditation is very useful. But it's the same practice. You know? I mean, it really is the exact same practice as sitting. It's just you're in a different posture. And the point of, be, of being mindful in all four postures is and taking that up as a practice is that if you're mindful of all four postures, you're being very mindful throughout the day. And that a lot of people think of meditation as sitting, and then they come to a Vipassana retreat, then they think of it as sitting and walking. But all four postures are really important to be mindful in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's stories in the suttas of people getting enlightened in all different postures. Lying, standing, walking, sitting. Now, standing meditation is in an Asia. There's some teachers that will teach standing meditation. You know, where you where you do standing for long periods. You know, I knew one teacher that who became a teacher, a yogi, who became a teacher, who his teacher taught him to do standing equally long, as long as the sitting. And, you know, with concentration, one can sit for pretty long periods of time. Um, and he got into standing for several hours at a time. In standing practice. Try it. Yeah. it so it's a, it's a legitimate practice. But the point is to be uh, continuously mindful. That's, that's really where the four postures come in. And if one went through the day being mindful of every posture that you were in, uh, you'd probably be enlightened, honestly. Be, the continuity of mindfulness would be tremendous. So let's be mindful of uh, a minute or two of silent sitting. Take a moment and see if you can hear the silence. Just feel it.
So I'd like to encourage you and strongly encourage you uh, to, profe- uh, to protect the silence for another day. Really, really unusual conditions. Um, People have worked really hard the last week or so. Um, So stay silent. Don't kick into talking mode. That's coming not too far off in the distance. Um, But see if it's possible, actually, even if you're in some discomfort, even if the mind is restless or you're back to sleepy mode or restless mode or agitated mode or you feel like you're back to square one from where you started, um, still see if you can find some space in the mind to actually hear the silence, the silence in the room, the silence in this environment, and in the, in the silence within. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Uh, rest in it. It's precious. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.